Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Western civilization is in crisis. It is becoming unmoored from its Judeo-Christian roots and the belief in the unique dignity of every human life, leading to destructive progressive social policies that some believe threaten us with a form of therapeutic authoritarianism. One such commentator is my guest today. Rod Dreher is an American journalist and best-selling author. He authored several books, including The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, How Dante Can Save Your Life, The Benedict Option, and his most recent, Live Not by Lies. Dreher has written about religion, politics, film, and culture in National Review and National Review Online, The Weekly Standard, The Wall Street Journal, Touchstone, Men's Health, The Los Angeles Times, and until recently hosted a popular blog at The American Conservative. His commentaries have been broadcast on National Public Radio's All Things Considered, and he has appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, Court TV, and other television networks. Dreher is a noted Christian apologist and writes a daily Substack newsletter. His next book will explore the importance of enchantment to human society. Rod, welcome to Humanize. It's great to be here, Wes, and uh, a, a blessed great Lent to you, my fellow Orthodox believer. You know, you spent a career in journalism. What got you interested in that field? You know, I was in college in the 1980s, and I was interested in politics, political science, but I knew that I did not have the temperament to be uh, an academic, and I didn't want to go to law school. And I realized when I started working on the college newspaper that you could have a lot more fun writing about politics and current events as a journalist than as an academic. And I just never looked back. And I, I think it was the right decision to make when I Look back now, I'm 56 years old when I see the friends of mine who did make decisions to go into academia, and they seem pretty miserable, but uh, I'm still having <laughs> Oh, my. Uh, you know, when you're a journalist, I think, and, and you and I kind of uh, plow the same fields, uh, or let's say a public advocate, you really can uh, have more freedom in the way you go about your work. No, it really is true. And I've I've been lucky, too. I had 12 years at the American Conservative, which just came to an end. And uh, they never told me what I could and couldn't write. They gave me total freedom. uh, And I was able to, gosh, I got my last three or four books through writing this blog that was really popular. We had about a million unique page views every month. And uh, I got to see what people were interested in. And I got to see where a lot of commentators, uh, things that they were missing out on, I was able to write about and fill in those holes. And now, of course, with Substack, that's where my new blog is, is rodrier.substack.com. You've seen a lot of commentators like Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan, and others who built up names for themselves in the mainstream media move over to Substack where they have total independence. Now, I should be clear, that's not why I moved to Substack. I mean, the attack was going in one direction and I was going in another, uh, and it was a friendly parting. Nevertheless, I really love the fact that uh, I have even more independence now. You know, I, I read your uh, blog continually, uh, and it's you write at length and continually, and um, uh, I, I'm just stunned at, at, at your prolific, uh, your, how prolific you are. How, what motivates you to put, and, and I know what, by the way, what good writing takes. I mean, it isn't just, you don't just type, you have to write and rewrite. What motivates you to be so energetic in communicating your thoughts? 
fish got to swim, Rod got to write. I mean, it, it, <laughs> people, I, people ask me that all the time because I do write a lot, but it is my total passion. And, you know, I do write almost everything I write. I do it in one take and just hit publish um, because I'm constantly writing. My, uh, my wife, when uh, we would go to parties, she would come over to me and whisper in my ear, stop writing because <laughs> I, I just can't stop it. it. It's like I'm always processing experience and then trying to figure an angle out, a way to reproduce it. And I, uh, I sometimes wish I could turn the thing off, you know, the thing that makes me want to write. But, um, you know, I, I've been fortunate to make a living by writing because it's what I would have wanted to do anyway. And um, I... Walker Percy, the great Southern writer, once said, he speculated why writers drink. And he said writers drink to tear down the wall between the left brain and the right brain. The right brain is where creativity comes from, and they've got to be able to breach that wall to get it into the left brain so they can get it onto the page. In my case, I, I, don't, I don't drink a lot, but if I did, it would be to turn it off because I just can't stop. You know, that's interesting. Um, you used to write more about politics, and now you write more about culture and religion. What made you make that shift in emphasis? Well, that's a great question. I think it's because I gave up hope in politics, that politics could really change things. Um, I, uh, and I also realized that at the root of all of our cultural problems, or culture, not politics, but culture, and at the root of culture is religion. For me, Wes, I was a very devout Republican and devout Catholic. Uh, and then the Iraq war really shattered me and shattered my faith in the Republican Party. I was a big supporter of the war, but once things went bad around 2004, 2005, and I began to think more deeply about why we had gone to war and how I had allowed myself to be deceived by the Republican Party and Republican leaders, it didn't make me not a conservative, but it did make me alienated from the Republican Party. At around the same time, the Catholic abuse scandal shattered my belief in the Catholic hierarchy and in the Catholic claims to authority. Now, I didn't cease being a Christian. I became an Orthodox Christian. But when I came into Orthodox Christianity, I, I came in as a different sort of Christian than I was as a Catholic. When I became a Catholic in 1993, first coming to Jesus as an adult, um, I, I really did believe wholeheartedly in the hierarchy. And... As, and I think that God does ordain hierarchy. I believe in the hierarchy of the Orthodox Church. But I don't have the sort of unquestioning, naive faith that I did that men who administer the Orthodox Church or any church are going to be good. And um, I hate that, that that happened to me, but that was the, the permanent wound that I, I suffered when I lost my Catholic faith. But uh, around the same time, too, it, it's funny to look back on all this. This all happened between 2004 and 2008. Around the same time, I, I first encountered the work of Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher. He's now teaching at Notre Dame. He's quite old. The philosopher who wrote a book called After Virtue back in 1982, I think it was. He was a Marxist then, and he's now a, a Catholic. But in the book, his basic point was we in the West have lost the civilizational glue that holds us together and gives us a common source of authority within which we can discuss our political issues and every other issue. He likened it to the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. Uh, and he said famously in the last paragraph of the book that we are waiting for a new and doubtless very different St. Benedict. Now, he referred to St. Benedict of Nursia, the saint who emerged um, out of the ruins of the Roman Empire and went on to found the Benedictine monastic order. He's seen as the founder of Western monasticism. And uh, in fact, the Western Benedictine monks during the so-called Dark Ages, they spread throughout the chaotic, barbarian-governed, if you can call it governance, uh, Western empire, and they prepared it for civilization again. What McIntyre is saying is that we need now in the West not to focus on the, the big questions of who's going to run this place, uh, but rather to form smaller communities of virtue within which the traditional virtues, or in my case as a Christian, the, the Christian faith, the Orthodox Christian faith, can survive this new dark age. I started playing with this thing I call the Benedict option, which is to say a choice to focus more on 
building these small communities, deepening the faith, thickening community bonds, as opposed to making a priority of major politics. It's not to say we should withdraw from politics. I don't think Christians have that uh, luxury, at least not now, but it is to talk about priority. And over the years, I began to explore these ideas. Where does it lead? And, and through this lens, I began to diagnose the different ails, ailments in our culture um, through the lens of the loss of common religious faith, of Christianity. And uh, I just find this not only more interesting, but I think more fruitful in the long run at trying to figure out how we're going to make it through this crisis. Just today, as you and I are talking, I was reading some piece, some obnoxious piece by Adrian Vermeule of Harvard. I call him Cardinal Vermeulear Mean um, because he's he, he's the uh, the arch integralist, Catholic integralist, and he his belief is that uh, the Catholics have to take over take over the mechanism of government and impose political Catholicism on everybody. Well, you know, that's that's an idea. It's an idea shared by a number of people that you could probably fit into a phone booth and still have room. But it's also, it seems to me, completely wrong that as Christians, uh, we have to first reconvert our own people. The Catholics can't even hold on to their own people, much less seize the powers of government. But um, in any case, to, to wrap it up, I, I'm just much more interested in the survival of the church than I am in the survival of liberal democracy and the structures of liberal democracy. You you bring something out, up about terms of, of uh, the Christianity of the West. I mean, I, I believe that we had a, um, a Christian quote unquote uh, culture, but that didn't mean everybody was a believer, but the moral values of, of Christianity, generally speaking, seem to be the uh, cohesive binder of uh, certainly my youth, uh, even though I was not raised in a cr- traditional Christian family, that kind of thing, and that that is what's fallen apart. And you've written something that um, I was going to get to later, but it seems relevant at this point. You said that the current generation of uh, Christians is living in uh, the same way as the last generation of pagans in the Roman Empire. And I found that to be very interesting. Uh, talk about that just a bit. Sure. Yeah, it, it is a, a frightening thing when you realize what happened to the final pagan generation. We're talking about the pagan elites of fourth century Rome. Um, I got this concept from a, a historian called Edward J. Watts, an American historian who wrote a book a few years ago called The Final Pagan Generation. And what he did was go back and look at the writings of Roman elites in that hinge of history, the fourth, uh, fourth century, when the Roman Empire switched from being pagan to being Christian. Now, we all know about Constantine's conversion early in that century, but that didn't suddenly make the empire Christian. Paganism was still the dominant religion. But over the course of that century, as Watt shows, Christian, as Christianity spread, and it's first of all spread among the lower classes, but then began to spread among the upper classes, Christians did begin to move into positions of power within institutions, governmental and otherwise in the empire. And yet, even as this was happening, the pagan leaders did not recognize what was really going on. They thought that, well, uh, these Christians, you know, it's something new, but Nothing is really going to happen because Rome has always been pagan for hundreds and hundreds of years and always would be pagan. Even to the very end of the century, uh, these pagan elites still couldn't grasp the fundamental changes upon them. And we even had in, I think it was the year 366, the emperor we called Julian the Apostate came to power. He was raised a Christian, but when he became Caesar, he threw it all off and tried to turn the empire back to paganism, but it was too late. The the momentum for Christianity was too great. My fear is that right now, Wes, we are living in a similar situation with regard to Christianity. I think about people like my mom and dad. My dad is gone. My mom is very old, but they raised my sister and me in the 70s. And we weren't big churchgoers at all, but if you had said to them that, you know what, we're, we're living in a post-Christian country in America, they would have had no idea what you meant, because even though we weren't churchgoers, the church we didn't go to was the Methodist church, was the Christian church. The because, church we didn't go to, that's pretty right. funny. No, no, well, but it's true because they thought Christianity was, it was like the, the, the power company or the water company, the church was just there. 
And yet within my, my mom is still alive, well within her lifetime, she has seen that go away to where now her grandchildren um, are, well, two of, uh, most of them are Christian, but now one isn't. And at least to use the Charles Taylor formulation, it is at least possible that they would become aware that they don't have to be Christian. That's something that my kids are having to live with, my mom's grandkids, the idea that you can be a not, not a Christian and that's okay. You can get along in society just fine that way. So um, this is the thing that worries me so much about our fellow Christians is that they are unwilling, and I think it is a matter of being unwilling, to see the crisis in front of us. Right now, I'm looking at, at the Catholic Church, our Catholic friends who are all caught up, at least at the level of the bishops' conferences in the Vatican, in the so-called Synod on Synodality. You know, it's a, a big global movement to get together and talk about having movements and, and meeting each other. I'm talking to you now from Europe, where the, the Christian faith and the Catholic faith is flat on its back. And yet these people, these men who run the Vatican, aren't even trying to, to resurrect the faith here. And I don't mean to be on my high horse because you know, the Orthodox Church, I was talking to a, a Russian priest not long ago here, came through Budapest where I'm living. And he said, you know, a lot of you in the West really think that the, the church has been reborn after communism. And it has, but you overinflate it. He said something like at Christmas time this past year, fewer than 2% of the Russian people were at the divine liturgy. That's not much of a revival. So my, my basic point, Wes, is that we Christians need to wake up and understand that we are in a terrible crisis and it's not going to solve itself and nobody's going to fly in from Rome or from Moscow or from Wheaton, Illinois and save us. We got to do it ourselves. You know, there are a lot of people who are listening to this who would not be Christian and uh, and certainly the Western society and the U.S. included is is secularizing. Do they have a stake? Um, people who are not believers in a Judeo-Christian moral philosophy being the undergirding of society. Oh, they absolutely do. I mean, your work uh, constantly testifies to this. Uh, if people haven't read the popular book by the historian Tom Holland called Dominion, they really should. It came out two or three years ago. Dominion. And it's a history of how Christianity uh, and the religion of the Bible, the Judeo-Christian Bible, made the West. And Tom Holland is not a believer himself, but as he says in the, um, in, in the book, in the introduction, he's a historian of ancient Rome, but he came to, and, and the classical world, but he came to wonder why is it that the values of the classical world are so repugnant to him as a good secular 21st century liberal? And he went on to talk about how Christianity transformed the classical heritage uh, of which it is heir and brought us the world of human rights, the world of uh, classical liberalism that we have today, the world of the dignity of human life. I was uh, in December, I went on a small tour with some other Christian journalists of the seven churches of Asia Minor of Revelation you know, Ephesus, uh, Laodicea, and some of the others. I got to go to the ruins of Ephesus and was really placed into a position, Wes, where I could imagine what it was like when St. Paul and the early apostles came there to preach. I went into the great theater in Ephesus where uh, Acts 19 takes place, some of the action there. It's still intact. When uh, the Christians, uh, a, a mob, uh, had been ginned up, to, they were working themselves up to commit a pogrom against St. Paul and the evangelist. Uh, it, it was averted. But the, the reason that the mob was against them was because Demetrius the silversmith understood that Christianity, this new religion, was a deep threat to the pagan order, which included economics. Demetrius and the other silversmiths made their money by creating small silver idols to be taken to the great temple of Artemis there in Ephesus. Well, uh, it helped me understand in a way I hadn't before that Christianity was not just a religion. It was an entire radically different way of life that was deeply alien to classical values, Greco-Roman values. And these are values that now people here in the 21st century at what is looks like it could be the end of, of Christianity, at least in the West. These are values that most everybody takes for granted. The dignity of human life, the sanctity of human life. 
um, the importance of, um, as we've come down to, to know it, the importance of freedom of religion and so on and so forth. It wasn't that Christianity brought, uh, brought about paradise on earth. There's been lots of struggles over the many centuries, and Christians have often behaved quite badly. The point is simply this. We had a model outside of ourselves by which to judge our own contact, uh, conduct. We don't have that now. And so that's why you're seeing uh, things like the transhumanism, transgenderism, all these sort of things that are deep violations of the order proclaimed in the Bible. And uh, we don't have anything to fight it with. It strikes me that, uh, you know, you talked about post-Christianity. I think the society is actually anti-Christian now, at least certainly the people who who control the instruments of power. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember, gosh, back in 2015, talking to a well-known evangelical pastor who we were talking about transgenderism and he said, uh, and, and LGBT more broadly. And he said when he goes around to speak to congregations in his evangelical denomination, he tells them the day is coming and it's coming fast when all of you here will be thought of as no better than Klansmen, Ku Klux Klansmen, because of the things you believe about human sexuality. And he told me that nobody believes him. But of course, now this has come, this has come to be, certainly in the UK. Uh, when you go to England and you see what's happening over there, it is affirmatively anti-Christian with Christians being arrested and charged simply for silent prayer in the vicinity of an abortion clinic. This is coming to America, too. Americans don't like to think this way. But if you look at the at the polls and if you, you see how how fallen away the younger generation are, even those who identify as Christian, you realize that there is no break on all this. And uh one thing I, I suspect you and I both saw this coming a long time ago, the the irreconcilable clash between LGBT rights and freedom of religion. You can't have them both fully, their fullest expression. There was a woman, I forget her name, Wes, maybe you'll remember, she was a Georgetown law professor, uh, a lesbian, an out lesbian, mm -hmm. gave an interview to Maggie Gallagher back in 2006 or an amazing piece she wrote in the Weekly Standard called Band in Boston. And this law professor was raised an Orthodox Jew, but had become a, you know, an out lesbian and an advocate for gay rights. And she was completely blunt with Maggie Gallagher. She said, there's no way to reconcile these two things. You can either have full religious liberty or full gay rights. And if it comes down to it, said the law professor, I'm in favor of full gay rights. Now, I remember reading that when that interview first came out and said, she's absolutely right. But so many other Christian conservatives were like, well, no, that's an extreme position. That's an extreme position. But the logic was there. And I think, Wes, because people like you and me operate and work and live in cultural and professional milieu that, uh, that are dominated by liberals, we could see the logic at work in ways that so many of our conservative church-going friends could not. And now we've gotten to that place. You know, a lot of people, uh, um, they think that the values with which they were raised still reign in society. And it's very hard to get people to see that that isn't true. I, I still have some hope. Um, I do agree that there is a conflict between the LGBT, quote, rights and religious freedom. Um, the answer to that is comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y. Um, you could have the, you know, civil freedom of religion, I mean, uh, freedom of LGBT rights, and allow people to dissent, for example, the, uh, the fellow who doesn't want to uh, create cakes um, for mm -hmm. a uh, same-sex wedding. It doesn't hurt the people uh, who want the cake to allow him to say, you know what, I, why don't you try a different bakery? But it's like, you have them saying you have to not only tolerate, you have to uh, be part of celebrating. And on the other side, um, you have some in the religious community, I think, that say, well, if you violate religious beliefs that I hold, I'm going to find a way to punish you. And that that leads to the same, I think, um, dilemma of uh, all win or, win or lose, uh, all win or all lose. And I think all win or all lose will be bad for everybody. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And this is why, even though I, I'm often a critic of classical liberalism, 
in the end, I'm going to come down on classical liberal principles and try to defend them simply because there is no alternative living in a wildly diverse society as we do. I, I don't want to oppress gay people. Um, I, I just don't. It's not part of, that's not who I am. I believe uh, that the Christian, Orthodox Christianity, what it teaches about human sexuality is true. I also recognize that we live in a society that is no longer affirmatively Christian and that some accommodation has to be made. I'm willing to, to do that. I've, I've done it all my professional life working in liberal newsrooms. But um, I, I don't see that uh, outside of a few people like Andrew Sullivan, Barry Weiss, um, who do seem to be principled liberals. Uh, most uh, people are all or nothing. And, um, and if you put it, make it a matter of civil rights, West, that's when I think it gets really, really tricky. I, I can remember back when we were arguing initially, maybe 10, 15 years ago about same-sex marriage. I remember trying to convince people that... Um, that sexual desire is not like race. They're two very different things because you would always hear the left arguing that, well, uh, uh, discriminating against uh, LGBT folks is the same as discriminating against black people. I said, no, that's not true. Well, that argument didn't win out. And so now in the courts, you, when you even have a uh, conservative dominated Supreme Court uh, making uh, rulings that raise, say, transgenderism to the level under civil rights law to a protected category, in some cases, that's really, really dodgy, because I don't see how we get out of that. Let's uh, talk a little bit about um, your past career, and then we'll get back into some of these heavy, meaty issues. Um, I, I think your breakthrough book uh, that kind of uh, separated you from the usual social commentator uh, was um, how Dante can save your life. And that seemed to me, I remember when it came out and I thought, well, that's an unusual <laughs> book for a, a political pundit, if you will. Right. What was it about Dante that, uh, and his writing, of course, he's dead hundreds of years, that, that you found so compelling? You know, I'm glad you asked me about that book because it may be my least selling book, but it's also my favorite. Um, I discovered Dante by, uh, I think it's a small miracle. I had moved back with my wife and kids to my hometown in South Louisiana, a small town on the Mississippi River, in the wake of my younger sister's uh, untimely death by cancer, death of cancer. And uh, I had hoped to you know, make a go of it there, to be closer to family and so forth. But it was revealed to me a few months after we got back that my family was never going to accept us because I was the, the guy who left and became citified and they would never take us back. This was such a shock to me because I come from good people, you know, but they, they had held this grudge against me all these years. And as good Southerners, nobody's ever going to give up a grudge. So I felt... <laughs> I fell terribly ill with uh, chronic mononucleosis, Epstein-Barr. And uh, the rheumatologist said that this is all from the shock from your family. You're never going to get well unless you leave here. I said, well, I can't do it. My parents are difficult, but I'm the only child they have left. And I can't ask my wife and kids to move again. Well, the doctor said, you better find peace, inner peace in some way, or you might not make it. So I was in a dilemma right then. My, my priest gave me a, a very strict prayer rule of 500 Jesus prayers a day, which would take about an hour if you say I'm right. This was all about to help me find inner stillness. But around the same time, I was in a Barnes & Noble bookstore in Baton Rouge. And I looked on the top shelf and there was the Divine Comedy. And I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I, I wish I had read that in college, but it's too late for me. No way I could ever understand this poetry now, 14th century Tuscan poetry. But I pulled it off the shelf anyway, opened it up, and there are the first lines of the Divine Comedy. They say, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for I had lost the straight path. Wes, it was like a lightning bolt struck me. I said, this is me. I'm 45 years old. I thought I was coming home, making the, uh, the Nostos journey of, of Odysseus to my home. And in fact, I'm in a dark wood. Maybe this guy, Dante, has something to tell me. So I ended up reading the Divine Comedy, and I didn't just read it like a literary exercise. I read it as if it were a map to get me out of my own dark wood. I read it with a lot of prayer. I read it with a lot of study so I could understand exactly what Dante, the poet Dante was saying. Um, 
And over time, with that prayerful reading and with the Jesus prayer, I was healed. I found inner healing. And uh, the thing that I uh, made me want to write about it was, and again, this started out by me writing about it on my blog and how going on this journey with the Pilgrim Dante, the, the poem itself takes you through the underworld and into heaven over Easter weekend. You, the reader goes on a journey himself through his own conscience, through his own heart, and learns to repent of his own sins and to, uh, and to fall in love with God again. And that's exactly what happened to me. I realized going through this journey that I had made an idol of family and place and of my father, who is the embodiment of all of these things. When I repented of these and I actually went to confession and told my Orthodox priest, Father, I have to tell you, I, I've been an idol worshiper. He said, what? I said, honestly, I've, I'm an idol worshiper. I made an idol of family and place and my dad, and I need to lay that at the foot of the cross and repent. He thought I might be a little nuts, but he gave me absolution. But then the floodgates of grace opened and my heart was healed and my body was ultimately healed. And I wanted to write this book, Wes, to talk about how this amazing thing God did for me through the poetry of this Christian who suffered exile and displacement hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But he spoke deeply into my heart and came to me as Virgil came to him in, in the poem, the Divine Comedy, and he can do this for everybody. I, I, and I think to, to wind this up, because I could talk about Dante all day, to wind it up, the thing I learned is that so often we mortal incarnate beings respond to art and story much more strongly than we do to nonfiction, to propositions. One of the things I learned when I was researching the book is that uh, scientists have tested people. They put the, the measurements on their on their on their skulls and given them uh, propositions to read, different moral propositions, moral arguments, and measured their brain waves when they were reading those. And then they handed them a piece of fiction that embodied the same moral principles, but in a different way. Their brains react very differently. There's so much more brain activity when they read it in a story. And what they theorize is that information that comes to us in narrative form is uh, metabolized, that's the word, much more differently in the brains. We tend to remember them much more deeply. The story gets deeper into our marrow, or the moral lesson when it's told as a story. I lived that by Dante. I, I could have heard the same exact principles told me in a self-help book or by a therapist, and they would have they would not have penetrated my own defense, my own highly ironic defenses. But when it came to me in the words of a beautiful poem and a dramatic story, they really healed me. That's interesting. You know, one of my passions is human exceptionalism. And this aspect of humanity of uh, stories and moral concerns is, is unique uh, to our species. Uh, I was thinking as you were just speaking I certainly understood the language you use. I'm Eastern Orthodox Christian as well as you are, and I understood exactly what you were talking about. But does uh, somebody who doesn't have that kind of Christian attachment, is there something in Dante that you think would speak to them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see it as a psychological journey because when Dante goes down into the inferno, uh, what the poet is doing uh, in this story is – Confront, having himself, his fictional self, Dante the Pilgrim, confront the reality of human sin. And the Inferno, I, I'd always imagined it was just uh, a medieval chronicle of horrors and tortures and things like that. It's not really. I mean, it is that, but more deeply, it's about human psychology and how narcissism plays itself out in a number of different ways through these different people. For example, uh, one of the things that healed me uh, was when Dante, the pilgrim Dante and his guide Virgil encounter the shade of Farinata and he rises up out of a grave in hell. And uh, Farinata was a great warlord of Florence, Dante's home city in the previous generation. And he's gone to hell because he didn't believe in the afterlife. He believed this life was all there was. And so he had lived all of his life on earth for the glory of the world. And there he is in hell. And he and Dante start arguing because they're on different political sides. Now, so I was reading that. I wanted to yell at the pilgrim Dante, Dante, move on. He's in hell. He can't change. He's just going to trap you here. Then I thought, wait a minute. This is me and my dad. 
because mm-hmm. my father, though he was, he believed in God, he also believed in himself and in the glory of our family and this wonderful place in the South and so on and so forth. And the fact that I had once walked away from it was something he couldn't forgive. And it gave me, the psychology of this gave me a way into understanding the dynamic, not only between me and my father, but how my own dear father was trapped in this worship of place and worship of what is passing and missing God and even alienating his own son by that. In a similar way, further down the road in, uh, in the Commedia, Dante the Pilgrim comes to a place where he runs into his um, his mentor, Brunetto Latini, who had been his real-life mentor in Florence, who had taught him everything he knows. And Brunetto is in hell, too. Brunetto advises Dante. He says, oh, my son, I can see in the world you're such a successful poet. Keep uh, reaching for glory, my son. Keep Keep going for the stars which sounds like the sort of thing you would hear in a, um, a high school graduation speech. But what you see is Brunetto is in hell. And what Brunetto, Brunetto's advice is, is all about vainglory. Dante himself, the pilgrim Dante, has to learn that, no, 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 if you want to make something that lasts forever, you've got to not just write for your own stardom, for your own celebrity. You've got to write for God. You've got to write for the agents. So this is the sort of thing that you you learn as you go through the Commedia. And then, of course, in in Purgatorio, the second part, that's when uh, we start to see how human community is reassembled from people who have repented of their sins and of their selfishness and who want to try to help each other. Um, that's something, too, that, that that helped me out. So you don't have to be a Christian or any sort of religious believer to learn a lot from reading the Divine Comedy. Uh, your next book was uh, The Benedict Option, which is aimed primarily, I think, at Christians. But I want to get into uh, Live Not by Lies, which I think has a more uh, general uh, ap- approach. Um, the term Live Not by Lies was coined by the great Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, what did he mean by that? That that phrase, live not by lies, uh, was the title of the final essay he wrote. It was a short, really just a letter to his followers in Russia in 1974, just before the Soviets sent him into exile. And uh, what he was telling them was this. He said, look, it, we don't have the power to go out in Red Square and, and denounce the government and change the government that way. But one thing we can do is refuse to say that we believe things that we don't believe, just to go along. Uh, he, and he told people, he gave them simple advice. Do not stay in a meeting when you, where you can't speak the truth. Don't subscribe to newspapers where the truth can't be printed, and on and on and on. These were little things, but Solzhenitsyn said that ultimately, uh, if you get yourself in the mindset where you will not compromise with an empire of lies, for the sake of living a peaceful life, then ultimately that empire could fall. Now, uh, Václav Havel, the Czech dissident, had said, or did say more or less the same thing three years later in a much longer essay called The Power of the Powerless. Havel used a, a, an example, a fictional example, of a greengrocer living in a communist city. He said, imagine a greengrocer has a sign in his shop window, like every other shop in the city, that says, workers of the world unite, the famous Marxist slogan. Nobody believes it, but everybody puts it there so they won't have trouble. But the greengrocer decides he's sick of living by that lie, of sick of pretending that he believes it, so he takes a sign down. What happens to him? Well, he gets arrested by the secret police. The store is confiscated from him. He has to go work as a street sweeper. He's lost a lot. He's paid a real price. But what has he gained by being willing to suffer, to pay that price? Well, he's gained his integrity, for one thing. And not only that, but he has shown the public around him that it is possible to live in truth if you are willing to suffer for it, to pay the price for it. And over time, uh, said Havel, making the same point as Solzhenitsyn, an empire of lies can't stand in the face of men and women who are willing to live for the truth. Now, I adopted that uh, that title and those examples in the book because I think we are living in a time uh, much like those men lived in. We, we're not living under Soviet communism, and I would not want to suggest that we had uh, th- that these parallels were too close. Nevertheless, Wes, I, I started on this project, the Live Not By Lies project, when I began to hear from people living in the United States and in Western Europe 
people who were readers of mine who had escaped Soviet communism and who were saying the things they see happening in the United States today, this was back in 2015, things we see happening in the U.S. today remind us of what we left behind. I thought they were exaggerating. I thought this was, it seemed, uh, where the, where's the KGB? Where's the bread lines? Where are the gulag, gulags? But the more I, got, I went into it, the more I listened to them and thought about it, the more I realized they were seeing something real. Yeah, you write about, you said this, and this is a quote, the parallels between a declining United States and pre-revolutionary Russia are not exact, but they are disturbingly close, close quote. What are those parallels? Just a few of them. Yeah. Well, uh, the most important one by far, according to Hannah Arendt in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, is mass alienation and loneliness. Arendt uh, published her, that was her first big book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. She published it in the early 1950s, trying to make sense of how Germany and Russia both fell to different forms of totalitarianism. And she looked to see what what those societies had in common. She said by far the most important was mass alienation. People um, had become alienated from each other and from their traditions, from their communities, and the, the war had done this, World War I had done this, but also industrialization and so on. And so they were looking for a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose and a sense of community. Uh, the, uh, the you can totality- really see that here in, the, in this country and in the West right now, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the uh, Nazism, Bolshevism, they both provided these things that people needed. Uh, another key, uh, key parallel was the desire to transgress for the sake of transgression. Um, she said that the elites uh, in both countries prior to the totalitarian age, they loved to tear down the, the basic pillars that made civilized life possible just for the fun of seeing those who had been excluded rush in. Oh my gosh, you can see this happening all the time now, you know, around, around us. And it's the elites who are the main ones propagating this. They're tearing, they're, they're tearing down the things that make their life, their, their peaceful, light, democratic, liberal democratic life possible. And uh, she said also, and this is something so that, that affects all of us. She said, uh, Aaron said that, people got to the point where they were willing to believe not the truth, but rather they, what they took as truth was something that flattered their own prejudices. In other words, she said people quit believing that objective truth was something that we could find and instead just surrendered that, that moral responsibility to search for truth just to agree with what, they, what, what pleased them. Gosh, we can certainly see that everywhere. Yeah, and it's not just on one side either, particularly that last one. I mean, you take a look at the uh, political roiling over the 2020 election, and you see that very uh, phenomenon uh, in action, even to this day. You know, as you and I are talking today, I I just saw a story in the New York Times about Rupert Murdoch's uh, testimony and the Dominion trial, the Dominion voting systems is suing Fox News, alleging that they broadcast uh, allegations against Dominion that they knew were false, that Dominion was part of stealing the 2020 election. Well, it turns out uh, Rupert Murdoch, the billionaire who owns Fox, testified that there's some truth to that. He said that we knew, and there's other evidence that's come out, that we knew that it wasn't true, but we made a lot of money by flattering our audience that way. It's really shocking to read this sort of stuff, uh, especially as a conservative. Uh, And I... You know, there's a lot of money to be made in uh, in in selling false narratives. We see it on the left and the right all the time. But this sort of thing is a precursor to totalitarianism. Yeah. And you also mentioned in the book um, the uh, losing faith in hierarchies and institutions. But if I as I look around the institutions and hierarchies that have existed uh, in in the West, they deserve to lose trust. I mean, trust has to be earned. You can't just say, well, I'm going to trust you because you're the institution. I think you're absolutely right. And this is what makes it so difficult. Um, <laughs> I, I mentioned earlier that you know, I lost my ability to believe in Catholic authority by the abuse scandal, precisely by seeing how, uh, how deep and how broad the lies were and how consequential the lies protecting abusers were in the Catholic Church. Um, now, the, it's, it is certainly the case that the sins of the priests, the, the, the hierarchs, 
do not uh, negate the truths of the faith. But the thing I had to learn the hard way was that uh, that may be true, but the, but it does take away the cre- the moral credibility of those who are proclaiming the truth, such that you may not want to be willing to consider the truth claims in the first place. Um, but it's also the case we've seen in COVID, the public health authorities, they completely uh, destroyed their own credibility. We've seen the more, more recently having to do with COVID and other things, how the social media companies played along with the government and allowed the government to dictate what they said and didn't say. We've seen what the media has done, my profession. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't I think we've, we've blasted our credibility, the educational uh, establishment and on and on and on the medical profession around transgenderism. It's hard to say who we can really believe in anymore. And, uh, and as somebody who worries about the rise of uh, potential totalitarianism, I can't pretend that there is an institution that I have um, basic trust in anymore. Which kind of, uh, if you're right, and, and I fear you are, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it kind of leaves people swimming at sea. And I worry that it can uh, create what I call Blade Runner world. That is, you'll have the rich and powerful safe and secure behind high walls with all of the gadgets and all of the technology and most of the world or most of the society living in social anarchy uh, in, in a, in a, a mess of um, a lack of humanity. Uh, do you think I'm overly alarmist? Oh, not at all. I, I, I don't know if you've seen the reports about this new uh, mega prison that they built in El Salvador. I think it can house 40,000 inmates. Uh, the, the elected leader of that country, uh, President Bukele, is a real authoritarian figure, but he inherited a country that had the worst murder rate in the entire world. It was overrun with gangs. And uh, he started throwing them in prison. And now they brought the murder rate down to one, where it's one of the safest countries in the world by throwing gang members in these inhumane prisons. Now, uh, the, for, as from a Western point of view, from an American point of view, it looks incredibly uh, inhumane. But you talk, I watched media reports and read media reports about talking to ordinary people in El Salvador. Uh, and they say, finally, we can go out on the street without having to worry about being robbed, extorted, raped, beaten, our sons uh, abducted and put into gangs. So this is what we're going to be faced with if we don't make hold on to the, our liberal democracy and the practices that make a liberal democracy. People can't stand anarchy forever, and they're going to start going for a strongman just so they can live in peace. Yeah, you're, it, freedom requires security. <clears throat> and, you know, at the Discovery Institute, we have a homelessness project, and you're, you're seeing with uh, the homelessness um, catastrophe that's occurring in places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and so forth, that very kind of approach playing out where there is nothing that people who with the, in the homeless <clears throat> situations it's almost like they don't have to obey the law. And what you find is that the government actually promotes this with something called housing first. It is a policy that says if you receive government money and you want to provide services for people who um, don't have homes, you cannot impose on them any requirements such as not to take drugs, not to commit crimes. The only thing you can do is provide them a space. And that leads to people living lives or having to, you know, not all of them, but people are going to be cheek to jowl with people who are not going to obey laws, who are going to continue with drug addiction, who are mentally ill. And, and that very uh, type of uh, um, milieu uh, I see sl- uh, being created here in this country. I think you're right. And I think this sort of dynamic plays out in different ways. I, for years, Wes, I have been warning our friends on the left about the way they use race and rhetoric. I'm saying that you 
you know, I, I grew up in the era, as you did too, of Martin Luther King, when that, when colorblindness was the ultimate goal that we were, we were shooting for. May not ever get it, but where people are judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Well, that was the liberal ideal and a, a broadly liberal ideal that even conservatives signed on to. And then things started to turn around when we started embracing identity politics and it became weaponized in, in a really harsh way. And I kept saying to my friends on the left, you don't understand that the language you're using to privilege um, people of color is uh, you can't escape the logic that white supremacists are going to use that same language. And you are calling up demons on the white far right that you're not going to be able to um, to control. And nobody wants to hear it on, on the left. Well, now I fear that we are seeing the bitter fruits emerge. I mean, in, in my own the, the school, my own kids used to go to, they're all uh, out of high school, but um, it was a classic Christian school in Louisiana. It turns out last fall, it was revealed that the headmaster of this conservative classical Christian school had a secret online life as a white supremacist. And, wow. and he, he said, thank God he was discovered. So I outed him. He got fired. But uh, he said that he was a rising star in the classical homeschooling world, with a classical schooling world, which he was. And he said he secretly wanted to use that to, uh, you know, to red pill people into white supremacy. Now, um, as horrible as this is, and I'm glad he got exposed and fired, uh, when I see a lot of the rhetoric that is completely mainstream on the left and in institutions like uh, uh, schools dominated by the left, like, what do you expect? And this is the thing that I fear for our own country, that the sort of classical, liberal, and ultimately Christian ideals that uh, our country was built on, that we've spent over 200 years working on trying to refine and perfect, we've thrown those away in favor of power politics and identity politics. And this cannot go to a good place. I mean, you look at the, the Bolsheviks who launched the Russian Revolution. They, had a, uh, they were a millenary and apocalyptic political cult who said that uh, what's wrong with the world is the fault of the capitalists, the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie. And it, once we take over in the name of the proletariat and we punish, we, there's a, be a bloodletting, we'll get rid of the capitalists and the bourgeoisie, then we will live in paradise, an earthly paradise. This is the same false promise that every millenarian uh, movement makes. Well, I think the woke are doing the same thing. They're, they're ignoring what Solzhenitsyn said, the wisest thing I think he ever said, which was that what he learned in prison is that the line between good and evil does not pass between social classes or between you know, ethnic, ethnicities. It passes right down the middle of every human heart. That is a deeply Christian, Judeo-Christian insight. Um, but we have forgotten it among our woke today. They want to say the line between good and evil passes between the races or gender identities. And uh, that is a recipe for civil war. This is, a, this is a topic for another interview, but it's utopianism, which is mm -hmm. incredibly dangerous. The idea that you can make heaven on earth uh, and that the ends justify the means. And you end up having... Um, uh, the uh, mean uh, the ends become the means, and the means become the ends. Uh, I don't want to uh, leave our discussion before I get into and in live not by lies. That half the book is about the remedies for what we've been describing, and you know it's very easy to to oh no, woe is us. But you you have some ideas on how to not fall prey to the totalitarianism that you see that could be coming. Why don't you share some of that with us? Oh, I'm glad you asked that uh, because that's the book would have been useful had it been just diagnosis, but it's also half of it is prescription. I ended up going over to the former communist countries of Eastern Europe and also to Russia to talk to Christians who had stayed behind and uh, ask them what advice can they give us for preparing, and not just Christians, but uh, all people who stand to be persecuted in this emerging totalitarian order. Um, and they gave a lot of different forms of advice. One of them is to form communities right now, you know, come together now with like-minded people, uh, get to know each other, talk with each other about what you see happening and what practical things you can do right there where you are to build resistance. I dedicated the book to this, uh, the memory of this priest named Father Tomislav Kolakovich. 
Vadikola Kovic was a Croatian Jesuit who was doing anti-Nazi work in World War II in Zagreb. He found out in, or I think it was 1943, that the Germans were coming to arrest him. So he sneaked out, moved to Slovakia, his mother's homeland, and began teaching at the Catholic University there. He told his students, I have good news and bad news. Good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the Soviets are going to be ruling when it's over. And the first thing they're going to do is persecute the church. So what he did was he put together small groups of devout Catholic students who would come together to pray, but also to talk about the world around them and try to understand it in light of scripture and church teaching, but also to make concrete plans for what, how they were going to respond to it. Within two years of that priest coming to that country, the, each town of any size in Slovakia had one at least one of these Kolakovic groups, and they formed a network. Some of the bishops in that country said, Father, you're scaring people. It's not going to be as bad as all that. But Kolakovic knew, knew better because he had studied to be a missionary in the Soviet Union, and he knew how the communists worked. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell over that country, Everything happened just as he said. And the reason the underground church was so strong there uh, was because Kolakovic and his uh, fellow Christians had prepared the people. So uh, the, that's one of the biggest lessons of the second half of the book is that there are things you can do, but you can't just sit around and wait for times to get bad because history can move very quickly. Now is the time to start building these networks and building practices into your life of resilience. Um, I interviewed a woman, Camilla Bendova. She and her late husband, Václav, were the only Christians inside the inner circle um, uh, around Václav Havel in the Czech resistance. And I asked her, you know, how did you raise your kids? They had five kids. They had to send them to communist school. I said, how did you prepare your kids to be faithful amid this persecution? She said, one of the things she did was read to them every day, two, sometimes three hours. I said, well, what would you read, Camilla? She said, well, I read them the myths, I read them the classic works of literature, and I read a lot of Tolkien. Why Tolkien, I asked. She looked at me in the eyes and said, because we knew that Mordor was real. And mm. I realized the genius of what this woman had done. She knew that these kids could not understand what totalitarianism was, what Marxism, Leninism was. They didn't have to. They could understand what the Fellowship of the Ring was, and they could analogize from that story to what all these activists coming to their mom and dad's apartment to talk at night about what can we do to advance freedom and protect our brothers and sisters. They were like the Fellowship of the Ring. And so the, the, we were talking earlier, Wes, about Dante and how uh, moral truths get deep into our bones when they come to us as story. That's what Camilla was telling me. We've got to start telling these stories now to our kids and to each other. And again, this, uh, I assume you would say, applies beyond people who are Christians, practicing Christians, but I would think to people who believe in, in the liberal concept of freedom and equality, right? Absolutely. I mean, what I was really shocked when my book first came out in 2020, um, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, the two left-wing atheist professors who are very principled people, were driven out of Evergreen State College in Washington because they refused to succumb to wokeness. They discovered the book and gave, devoted an entire one of their podcasts to it, to praising it, even though they are neither on my political nor religious side. Barry Weiss, secular uh, Jewish center-left lesbian, got behind the book too, because she loves freedom and defends freedom. She told me once we were talking on, on a, a YouTube, thing, a Zoom call, she said, you know, Rod, if you had said to me two years ago, I would be at the same size as Rodri on anything, I wouldn't have believed it. But this is what wokeness has done. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, very interesting. And on that point, might I say, um, Camilla Bendova, the Czech uh, activist, said that one thing you have to do is make alliances across political and religious lines. Uh, she said that um, we, as Christians, she and her husband were Catholic. She said that nobody else on the top level of the, uh, of the resistance shared our faith, but we also knew that all of those hippies, uh, Havel and the others, that they had the thing that so many Christians did not have, which is to say courage, the courage to stand up. She said almost all of the Christians we knew kept their heads down and their mouths shut to conform to avoid trouble. But these hippies wouldn't do it. And we, we felt like we couldn't do it, she and her husband, uh, being responsible before God. Um, 
but they knew that they had to be allies with people who would have their backs in trouble. And they too would have the backs of these hippies. Uh, I heard from people over and over who are involved in the resistance to communism. This is what you have to do. If somebody is a Jew, somebody is of another religion or no religion at all, but they can be counted on to stand courageously with you when you resist lies, that person needs to be your friend, your close friend, and you need to be theirs. And finally, I should say the biggest lesson of all is we have to learn how to suffer. This is an extremely difficult thing for people in the West today to understand, even people in churches. Uh, but if you're not prepared to suffer something for the sake of the truth, then you're going to collapse. You're not going to make it. Uh, we have to develop a sort of asceticism, a willingness uh, in our own lives, whatever our religion is, or even if we have no religion at all, to be willing to suffer like the greengrocer, suffer the loss of our business, the loss of our social um, privilege, of our platforms, of any number of things for the sake of telling the truth. Because if that's it, you're not willing to do that. You're nothing. I remember talking in Moscow to a Baptist pastor, Yuri Sipko, an old elderly man. He had once led the Russian Baptist. We stood near Red Square after the end of our interview. The snow had started to fall. He looked at me uh, sternly and said, go back to America and tell the church that learn how to suffer now because you won't be able to make it through what's coming if you don't. We're almost out of time, but I want to get a little bit into uh, your next book, which deals with enchantment. Can you give us a brief preview of coming attractions? Sure, sure. Well, um, I'm interested in how we revive Christianity or revive religion in the West. We are, uh, we are de-Christianized. We are disenchanted using the, the Max Weber famous formulation that in, the, in a secular age, people no longer believe in the quote-unquote magic of religion. Well, I think that's not quite true that, uh, in fact, people believe in anything now but Christianity. I remember in Oxford last summer, I met a young man, a 27-year-old Anglican ordinand, who said that the new atheism is completely dead in his generation, but the occult is on the rise. So uh, what I'm interested in is to know how, if it's possible, that we in the post-Christian world can regain a sense that God, as we Orthodox say, is everywhere present and fills all things. And what I've learned in the research I'm doing is that um, the beginning of faith, of a real faith, is theophany, a showing forth of God, whether it is a miracle, a miraculous healing, or a, a sense, an extraordinary sense of the numinous that t teaches us that God is real. And that's how I came to Christ. I, and that's how so many people did. I, I found out in doing my historical research that the early church depended heavily on miracles and healings and the casting out of demons. The, uh, the pagan uh, historian Celsus, philosopher Celsus, who was an opponent of the Christians, complained in writing that the Christians were doing so well because their magic was stronger than the pagan magic. Well, I, I found out as I've talked to people that miracles and wonders and things like that are far more common than we realize, in part because our, our media is uh, populated by secularists who either downplay it or don't believe in these things. But once you get people talking about it, people have experienced things. People have seen things. And I want to try to encourage people in this book to, uh, to talk about these things. And there are also, believe it or not, Wes, real strategies that we can employ to make us more aware and more attentive to the movement of God and of the Spirit uh, in, our, in our daily lives. So I'm really excited by this book. It's not a political book at all, um, but it's a book I think that's really made for our time. As you and I are talking, the Asbury Revival has, uh, it's come to an end, I think, but that was this extraordinary spiritual outpouring in, uh, of all places, small town Kentucky. And uh, it, it shows that people are hungry, especially the younger generation, hungry for any kind of spirituality. I, I think that wokeness is so big among the young because uh, like the people in pre-totalitarian Russia and Germany, they're hungry for an experience of meaning, of purpose, and of community. There are unhealthy ways and destructive ways to get that and healthy ways. I think that... Um, as a Christian, I want to see people return to the church and return to an authentic religion, a form of religion. So that's what I'm trying to do with this book. Well, let's just uh, end here with uh, your your Substack. Uh, it it's uh, you're moved. Uh, you've moved your 
a blog off the um, American Conservative to the Substack. It's a daily newsletter, I understand. Tell us uh, if people decide they want to subscribe, what they will receive uh, uh, from Rod Dreher. <laughs> well, yeah, it's at roddreher.substack.com. And um, they're going to get uh, once a day and maybe even more than once a day if, if the news <laughs> wouldn't <inspired>. surprise me. <laughs> you know me, I, I can't stop writing. But uh, I write about... Um, Culture, culture war, religion, politics, media, uh, things like that. Uh, and I'm going to continue to do the kind of blogging that I do, but I'll have to do it in a more precise, not so discursive way because Substack only gives you a limited space. But I also have been doing for the past couple of years there, Wes, a, uh, I've devoted the Substack to talking about spirituality and religion and art and story in a way that is... Uh, Definitely not on a culture war length, because a lot of times people want to talk about these things without feeling like they're being drawn into combat. So I'm going to continue that. Some of my posts will be in that way, but in other ways, in a lot, most of the time, my posts there, my daily posts, will be uh, about uh, what it means to live as a conservative but not a Republican, uh, <laughs> as a conservative and a religious conservative in this post-Christian uh, disintegrating. Uh, world. I, I'm a hopeful person. People, when they meet me, they're often surprised that I'm actually so cheerful and buoyant because I write about really heavy things. And I tell them, I, maybe it's just because I, I come from South Louisiana and that's the kind of people we are. The hurricane is coming. You got to get serious and batten down the hatches. But once you've secured the place, you bring out the gumbo pot, you ice down the beer and the Coke, you invite people over and you have a party to celebrate being there together while the storm rages outside. That's the general way I approach my blog and the way I approach life. And if people, uh, we'll put uh, in the program notes a link so that if people are interested in uh, subscribing or reading some of what you've uh, done at, at the Substack, they can take a look. I appreciate that. It's only um, $5 a month, $50 a year. That's 20, uh, 20 cents a day. What a bargain. What a there bargain. You go. <laughs> Roger, thank you very much, and I hope you'll be on the show again. I'll be happy to come back. God bless you all and all your listeners. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.